Well, it's my great privilege and joy this morning to be preaching to you from the book of Acts, chapter 17. I invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and holy word to Acts, chapter 17, beginning in verse 22, and to the end of the chapter. Someday, Lord willing, we will finish our study in the book of Mark, but that day is not today. Today is Student Mobilization Sunday, and we are in Acts 17. So I invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of God's perfect word. Hear the word of the Lord this morning from Acts 17, beginning in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined and believed among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Join me in prayer. Oh, Lord God, we praise you that you've given us your word, that you've spoken, that we can know you. We confess, God, that it's so many times in so many ways that even on this morning we come in here and we're distracted or Thoughts and minds and hearts are pulled in so many different directions. Help us now, God, we pray, to focus, to hear your word, to be changed. God, help us to know you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. For the past 13 days and for the next 17 days, nearly 2 billion people around the world have been fasting from sunrise to sunset during the Muslim month of Ramadan. From sunrise until sunsets, they will not smoke, they will not eat, they will not drink anything at all for 30 straight days. Now, after the sun finally does go down, they have a special meal that they call in Arabic iftar. And I had the opportunity, the privilege really, to go with one of our college students this past week. 
and celebrate iftar with four Muslim international students. And all of these students were from closed countries, countries where it's illegal to send a missionary. And when we got to their apartment, we sat down on the floor in the traditional style. We ate, our, we really gorged ourselves on their traditional food. And after the meal, we spent hours and hours talking about basically nothing except religion. We stayed up there till after midnight talking about religion, as a matter of fact. And as I was talking with them, the longer we talked, the more that it began to dawn on me that in the world's eyes, these men would be considered very religious. Uh, They would be considered very religious, even more religious than most of us sitting in this room. Because most Muslims pray more times a day than many of us pray. They, They go to services at the mosque more times during the week than we go to church and they fast more than we do i mean i mean we tried to have a a fast last year remember that for like one day and that about did us all in but just imagine fasting every single day all day long from sunrise to sunset for 30 straight days in a row for a whole month every year of your life Yes, Muslims are very religious. But as we got talking, the the more that we talked, I also realized that these guys knew very little about God. And so even though in the world's eyes they might be very religious, at the end of the day they don't know God. And that was the same realization that the Apostle Paul had as he was traveling through the city of Athens, Greece, on his second missionary journey. As he went through the city, he saw all of the idols all over the place, and it tore him up inside. And so he went to the marketplace, he went to the local synagogue, and he just started preaching the gospel to anyone who happened to be there, to anyone who would listen. And eventually he ran into some of the philosophers there in the, in the marketplace, and they invited him to come speak at the Areopagus. Now you have to know that at this time, Athens was the intellectual and cultural center of the world. The, the Athenians, the, the Athenian philosophers were the blue checks. They were the cultural elites of their day. The names that we still remember of famous philosophers like Socrates and Plato, they lived and taught in Athens. The rich Romans would send their kids off to Athens U to get their philosophy degrees. And so when Paul is invited to speak at the Areopagus, it's very likely that this was some sort of formal council, maybe even like a, the board of education of Athens. And standing in their midst, in a very respectful, yet careful way, Paul basically says to them, you all are very religious, and you think you know God, but you do not. Look at what he says, beginning with me in verse 22. Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Now, Paul seems to be intentionally using respectful, but at the same time, sort of generic language. Instead of saying that they're idolaters, he says that they're very religious. Instead of saying that he saw all the idols, he says that he saw their objects of worship. Even the, the word that he uses here for altar 
This word refers specifically to a Greek or to a Gentile altar, as opposed to the altar to the one true living God. So there were other words that Paul could have chosen that would have given them more honor, but it seems like he specifically reserves those words for the truly religious, for those who truly worship the one true God. So Paul is respectful, but he's also careful to make a distinction between their beliefs. Paul here, he appeals to their insatiable intellectual curiosity. He points out that as he observed all their different objects of worship, their their shrines and their temples, their altars and their statues, that he even found an altar to the unknown God. Apparently, the Athenians, who they, they were polytheists, which means they worshiped many gods. Apparently, they were so religious that they had altars to every possible conceivable god, even the one that they may have missed. They wanted to make sure that they had an altar to him too, which was also a confession of sorts. That even though they prized themselves on being the intellectual elite of the day, they had to admit that maybe, possibly, there still could be one God out there that they don't know. And Paul draws them in with their obsession for knowledge, their obsession for wisdom, their obsession to hear something new. And he says, what therefore you worship as unknown This I proclaim to you. And let this be a bright, red, flashing warning to every one of us here today that you can be very religious and still not know God. The Athenians were very religious, but they were idolaters. They worshipped idols made of gold and stone that represented their gods. They, They looked to these idols for satisfaction, for happiness. And even though our idols might look differently, we still do the same thing today. An easy way to identify in your, an idol in your life is to ask yourself this question. How would you fill in the blank? Be honest. If only, then I could be really happy. If only I had what? If only I what? Then I could be happy. If I only had a spouse, then I could be really happy. If I only had children, then I could be happy. Or if I only had less children, then I could be really happy. If I only had more free time, if I only had more time to go hunting, then I could really be happy. If I only had a different job, then I could be happy. If I only had a little bit more money, if I could only live in that neighborhood, if I could only drive that car, then I could be really happy. If I had enough money to buy that thing, that would make me really happy. If I could only be done with school, then I could be really happy. If I could only look like her, if I could only weigh that much, if I could only be healthy again, if only I wasn't so depressed, if only my loved one was still here, if only somebody really loved me, then I could be really happy. There are an infinite number of answers because there are an infinite number of things that we can take and turn into idols. The theologian John Calvin was right when he said that our hearts are idol factories. They're always churning out idols for us to turn to. And whenever we look to anything or anyone 
more than God in the place of God to ultimately satisfy us, to really make us happy, then we've made that thing an idol. We reveal our idolatry and we reveal that we don't really know God. Think about it, because if we really knew God, then we would know that only God can truly and ultimately make us happy. Only God can ultimately satisfy us. So our idolatry reveals that we do not know God. You can be a very religious idolater from Athens or from America. Your idols can be gold and stone or blood and flesh or pixels and glass, whatever it may be. But no matter what form your idolatry takes, there's only one solution to set you free. And that's to know God. To really know Him. And in order to know Him, somebody must make Him known to us. Because we don't come into the world naturally knowing God. The Bible says we come into the world naturally blinded to God by our sin. So we need someone. We desperately need someone to make God known to us. So that's what Paul does. Paul explains who God really is and what He is really like. Look with me beginning at verse 24. The God who made the world... The word there is the the cosmos. So it's saying the God who made the universe and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples. Paul makes the unknown God known to them by contrasting the Athenian idols with the one true living God. He emphasizes the vast difference between them, but also the vast difference between us and God, between man and God. But he's completely unlike us. He's asserting First of all, he begins by asserting that there's only one God, not many. He says he is the God. He is the creator of all, the Lord of all. But then Paul does something that at first seems a little bit odd. He starts talking about hands. Did you notice? He says, the Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man. Or it could also say, be translated, made by hands or handmade. Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He says, God doesn't live in temples made by hands, nor is he served by hands. The point is that everything we make, we make with our hands. Without our hands, we couldn't do much. And you painfully realize this every time you smash a finger or you cut your hand for the rest of that day, you realize just how much you use your hands to get around. But God made everything in the entire universe without hands. That means that everything, including you and me, is not man-made, it's God-made. And it's not hand-made, it's word-made. God spoke everything into existence. Let there be light. And there was light. God doesn't need hands. So if God made planets and plants and molecules and man without hands, then why should we think that he's dependent on our hands to serve him or to build him a place to live? God is not dependent on us. We are completely dependent on him. God is the great giver and we are the needy receivers. And he made without hands, verse 26... 
From one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God, as the creator, created every nation, every person, and God, as the Lord, sovereignly decided where those nations would be, where those people would be, how long they would exist there, and where they would exist. And that's really an important reminder for us on a day like this, isn't it? On a student mobilization Sunday, where we celebrate and send out our graduates and summer missionaries. Some of you, God decided to send to Madison County to spend years here, growing up here, graduate from high school here. Some of you, he decided to send here for a few years to go to college and graduate. And some of you, he's decided to send you to North Africa for six weeks or to New Orleans for a week this summer. And why? Look at what verse 27 says, that they should seek God. And perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. The imagery there is of of someone who's in the dark, someone who's blind. They're they're reaching out. They're trying to find their way. It's an image of someone who's lost. So the reason why God has put people where they are, when they are, is that they would seek God, that they would reach out for him. They would try to find him and that, that they would find him. That means God has put you where you are right now. And God will put you where you need to be when you need to be there so that you will seek him and you will find him. So that as his witness that you will know him and you will make him known. Because it's not just all about us, is it? It's not just about us seeking and finding God, but God has put us where we are as witnesses so we would help others to seek and find God. There are all kinds of ways to make God known. You can pray with your struggling coworker on break. You can get a, a group of your friends together here at church and start an equipped group and read a good Christian book together and grow in understanding God. You can make God known by tangibly putting his love on display by sacrificially serving your roommate or your spouse. Or by sharing the gospel with your neighbor over dinner or by getting the kids, the family together to read the Bible before bed, discipling your family. There are all kinds of ways to make God known. It doesn't matter if God has put you somewhere around a certain people for a short amount of time, like Paul was in Athens, or for a long period of time. The, the length, the time, the place might change. The purpose does not. God puts you where you are so that you would know him and make him known. But before you can make him known, you have to know him yourself. First, you have to find him. And the good news is, he's not hard to find. Look what Paul says in verse 27. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Now, Paul knows that the Athenians did not grow up going to vacation Bible school singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. They don't know the Bible, but they do know Greek poetry. So he quotes from their Greek poets to show them that even though they have a lot to learn about God, they're not that far off. That even some of their own poets, their pagan poets, were on the right track every now and then. That even though 
the one true living God might have been unknown to them, he wasn't unknowable. God's common grace allows all people everywhere to get some sense of who he is and what he's like. Paul continues in verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Paul keeps driving home this point that God's not like us, that God is different from us, that the creator is so unlike the creation that no statue of gold or stone, no matter how beautiful, and the Greeks made some beautiful statues, no statue, no image, no idol, nothing could ever represent the infinite glory of God that we could make with our hands. If we are God's offspring, if God made us, then we can't make God. We can't make images of God because God made us in his image. Paul shows them that their idolatry is intellectually dissatisfying, that it's inconsistent. And for a people group who so prized wisdom and knowledge, this was a powerful argument. Paul is saying to them that you're trying to satisfy yourselves with idols, but you can't. Idols aren't ultimately satisfying mentally, spiritually, or in any way at all. This is how idolatry always works. When we don't know God, we try to make a God out of something that we do know. Out of something that's like us. And it never satisfies. For some people, in some places today, it still looks a whole lot like it did back in Athens. It doesn't matter if it's a stone that's shaped with a human body and an elephant head in India, or if it's a porcelain woman holding a baby in Peru. These images can never satisfy because they can't fully represent the infinite glory of God. And so people keep going back to them to make offerings and sacrifices year after year and month after month and week after week, and in some cases even day after day. Why? Because they're looking for satisfaction from an idol and they'll never get it. But we do the same thing, don't we? If only I had this certain job, then I would be happy. Then what happens? You get the job in a few weeks, few months, few years later, you start thinking, oh man, if I just had a different job, then I could really be happy. Why? Because... Whenever we get our idol and it doesn't satisfy, we just go looking for another idol. Or we go looking for more of the same idol. That's what John D. Rockefeller, who was the the Jeff Bezos of the 19th century, one of the richest men in the world, that's what he said. Somebody asked him once, they said, how much money is enough money? And he famously replied, just a little bit more. Why? Because... No matter what shape or size they come in, idols never satisfy. So what do we do? What can we do? In order to be set free from our idolatry, we must know God. In order to know God, somebody must make him known to us. But once somebody makes him known to us, then what do we do? How should we respond? What are we supposed to do? There's only one thing we can do. It's the same thing that Paul tells the Athenians to do in verse 30. 
Look at what Paul says. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. In order to know God, everyone everywhere must repent. They must change their minds. That's what repent means. They must change their minds about God. The unknown God that they did not know has been made known to them. And now they must change their thinking about God. The old mistaken ways about God must be corrected. The old incorrect thinking must be abandoned. The God they did not know and did not love, they must come to know and love. Why? Why must they repent? Verse 31. Because God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. God has overlooked, Paul said. He has, God has ignored their ignorance. He has mercifully spared them from the immediate judgment that they deserve. But he will not overlook their ignorance for long. A day is coming where he will judge the world. Judgment day is coming and they must repent. And the judge will be, he says, a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So the judge will be a man whom he has raised from the dead to live forever as the divinely appointed judge of all the earth. Clearly, this is no ordinary man. Clearly, this is the God man, Jesus Christ. To the worshipers of dead idols, Paul proclaims a dead man who is no longer dead. He's alive and everyone everywhere must repent because he will judge the world in righteousness. He will judge the world fairly, justly, according to God's perfectly righteous standard. And the bad news is no one is righteous. No, not even one. That means everyone everywhere must repent of their ignorance and of their unrighteousness. We must repent of our wrong way of thinking about God and we must repent of our sin. The, the idols that we have so dearly clung to, we must forsake. The sin that we have so dearly loved, we must hate. That's what it means to really repent. But look at what happens in verse 32. Look at how the Athenians respond. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. It seems as though as soon as Paul gets to the resurrection, as soon as he starts getting to the good news, that they don't even let him finish. They just start laughing out loud. They interrupt him. They, they don't let him finish. They just start making fun of him. Resurrection of the dead. Look at this crazy guy. They outright reject the gospel. But others said, we will hear you again about this. Some were interested, but they weren't ready to accept it yet. Theirs was a soft rejection, a polite rejection, if you will. But then there was another group. Verse 34. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Some accepted the message. Some believed. It says, including one of the philosophers sitting on the board of education of Athens. And isn't it interesting that Paul commands them to repent 
in verse 30. And then here in verse 34, it says they believed. Why doesn't it say some men joined him and repented? Isn't that what he told them to do? Well, it's because belief and repentance are two sides of the same coin. They're twins from the same womb. You can't have one without the other. To believe in Jesus Christ, you must repent. And to repent, you must believe in Jesus Christ. And it is only when you repent and believe in Jesus Christ that you truly come to know God. And it is by continuing to repent and believe in Jesus Christ that you grow in your knowledge of God. There is no other way to know God apart from Jesus Christ. Because God made us all from one man and one woman to bear his righteous image in the world. To seek him, to find him, to know him. In the garden, Adam and Eve didn't have to look hard for God because he walked with them. They knew him personally. But then when they sinned, they were cast out from his presence. And ever since, our sin has darkened our hearts and our minds from knowing God. We suppress and deny the knowledge of God that smacks us in the face every time we see a beautiful star, a beautiful starlit sky or every time we see a powerful thunderstorm. These glimpses of glory are meant to lead us to know and worship the one true living God, but the one who is all powerful, the one who is all beautiful. But they don't. Why? Because we're so blinded by our sin. Blinded by our sin. We can't know God. And that's not even the worst of it. The worst part of it is that we like it this way. We actually prefer the darkness. Why? Because we know that if we come to the light, that our sin will be exposed. And we think that we can hide in the dark. We know if we come to the light that we're going to feel guilty and shame. And ultimately that we're going to suffer eternal condemnation in hell. So we'd rather just stay in the dark. Blinded by our sin, we don't know God and we don't want to know God. We haven't found God because we're not even seeking God anymore. So you know what God does? God takes on flesh and the Son of Man comes to seek us. The Son of Man comes to seek and to save the lost. Jesus comes. The man whom God appointed as the judge of all the earth is the same man who is the Savior of all the earth. Jesus, the God-man, suffers our judgment in our place to save us from His judgment. Unlike the Apostle Paul, who could only make God partially known, Jesus makes God fully known. Paul could only make God partially known to the Athenians. He couldn't make God fully known to the Athenians. Just like, I can't make God fully known to you. But Jesus comes and makes God fully known because the only way that God can make himself fully known is if God does that. Only God can make God fully known. And God does that by taking on human flesh and dwelling among us in the person of Jesus Christ. He, he does that by living the perfect life that we were supposed to live, by dying the shameful, painful death that we were supposed to die and rising again. And now 
we as his witnesses, every time that we preach this gospel, every time that we make God known, God's spirit moves and opens blind eyes to see and lightens darkened minds to know God. The unknown God becomes known in Jesus. So, it doesn't matter if you're a very religious Athenian or a very religious Muslim or even consider yourself a very religious Christian. At the end of the day, the only way that you are going to know God is to repent and believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. And the only way that you're going to continue to grow in the knowledge of God is to continue to repent and believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord every day of your life. The good news is that because of what Jesus did for the religious and for the not-so-religious, we don't have to try to hide in the dark with our sin anymore. By faith, we can come out to the light of the world, to Jesus Christ, and He will forgive us of our sins. He will make God fully known to us, and we will have eternal satisfaction in Him. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah.